heard the man. Good diet, exercise, and at least 2,000 international units of vitamin D a day. I think it's really incredible that he was the first to use activated vitamin D to treat people with kidney disease. It is also incredible just how many genes are regulated by vitamin D related to blood vessels, heart function, and blood pressure. The brain activates vitamin D locally where it can regulate neurotransmission, reduce risk of Alzheimer's disease, and improve neurocognitive dysfunction. It is bewildering that 40% of the U.S. is deficient in vitamin D. And knowing how many genes it regulates related to cardiovascular health, it's no wonder that vitamin D could be related to stroke risk. Grab your milk, orange juice, wild-caught salmon, and some sun to keep serum levels above 30 nanograms per milliliter, where 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter is preferred. And according to Dr. Hollick, up to 100 nanograms per milliliter is safe. Dr. Hollick's app, D-Minder, which is in the show notes, tells you when you are making vitamin D based on where you live, how much you're making right now, and warns you to get out of the sun if you've gotten enough. As a reminder, he recommends that you spend about 50% of the time it would take to get a mild sunburn, then cover your body with a hat and clothing instead of sunscreen because that will absorb most of the UV. And remember, always cover your face because your face does not make vitamin D. Dr. Hollick also says that unless you're a lifeguard, everyone should take a vitamin D supplement, which you can get cheaply from any local store such as a CVS, and while vitamin D3 is the one made in your skin, both D3 and D2 are sufficient as supplements. He takes 6,000 international units, which is from a 5,000 international unit vitamin D supplement and a multivitamin that contains 1,000 international units. He recommends to his patients to take around 3,000 to 5,000 international units a day who have reportedly done well. Additionally, we need to be critical of how trials are designed and see if participants are already sufficient in vitamin D before they take these supplements. It's important to keep in mind both the good and the bad in the sources you consult so that you can come to your own informed conclusions. It is worth noting that there was a popular New York Times article from 2018 that I will post in the show notes that talks about how Dr. Hollick may have used his position to financially benefit from the increase in vitamin D lab tests by 547% from 2007 to 2016 by working with labs and drug makers. Since then, he has stated in interviews that he doesn't get any additional money if they sell one test or one billion, but I wanted to mention this so that we can all practice making our own informed decisions when making lifestyle changes. In the next podcast, we are going to talk to University of Michigan's Dr. Kenneth Langa about how cardiovascular disease is a central issue in the pathology of cognitive decline, the social and economic impacts of stroke recovery, dealing with confounding factors of measuring vitamin D, and the brain health advice he gives his patients. See you soon. understand a background of vitamin D a little better, I'm going to introduce our guest today. At Boston University, Dr. Hollick is the director of the General Clinical Research Unit, professor of endocrinology, diabetes, nutrition, and weight management, the director of the Vitamin D Skin and Bone Research Laboratory, professor of physiology and biophysics, and a member of the Evans Center for Interdisciplinary Biomedical Research. Beginning by receiving his MD and PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, he now has over 400 peer-reviewed publications, over 200 review articles, and is the author of both the 2004 book, 
the UV Advantage, and the 2010 book, The Vitamin D Solution. Additionally, he has developed an app, DMinder, that can help estimate your serum vitamin D and measure the vitamin D you may be obtaining right now in your location. He is a diplomat at the American Board of Internal Medicine, a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and a member of the American Association of Physicians. Among his many awards includes the General Clinical Research Center's Program Award for Excellence in Clinical Research from the NIH, 2020 Boston Magazine's Top Doc, 2019 Expertscape's Number One Worldwide Expert in Sunlight, and 2019 Expertscape's Number One Worldwide Expert in Vitamin D Deficiency. Getting Dr. Hollick to speak on my podcast was initially considered more of a dream than reality in that he is the one who first identified the major circulating form of vitamin D, 25-hydroxyvitamin D, as well as the hormonally active form, 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, was one of the first to realize its potential and treat patients with activated vitamin D and is consulted by major celebrities and scientists on its use. Many of my lingering questions on vitamin D were answered on this podcast. Without further ado, here is Dr. Hollick. So I guess just first to start out, uh, tell me about your background, like what got you to be the leading authority of vitamin D? Yeah, they always ask that question. And so you would think, of course, that I, I focused on wanting to do that. Uh, but actually, um, when I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin back in 1969, and just like all students, you want to work in the hottest areas. Um, back then, his DNA was discovered, and there was a lot of work in that area, and that's what I wanted to work in. Um, and also in mitochondrial oxidation, how you utilize energy uh, from food, but many postdocs were already in many of the mentors, and so I was told that I could work in the field of vitamin D, and I had no interest in working <laughs> because it was considered to be important for rickets in children, right? It found a cod liver oil. So what more could there be? And it turned out that happened to be in the right place at the right time and basically made a, a sow's ear into a golden purse um, by being with Dr. Hector DeLuca. My master's degree was to identify the major circulating form of vitamin D that people now measure to determine their vitamin D status known as 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And I was the first to identify the active form that was made by the kidneys. Uh, my roommate and I uh, were both organic chemists and we were the first to chemically make it. It was a 21-step synthesis, took us two years. But what was important was that the material that we made, we realized that patients with kidney failure can't activate vitamin D. And that's the reason likely that they had severe bone disease. And so the material that we made in the test tube uh, back in 1971, and we gave to patients with kidney failure that were wheelchair bound, they started walking again. So that was my first introduction into translational medicine as it relates to vitamin D. And then I became fascinated by the fact that it's amazing to me that humans basically forever, and in fact, most vertebrates on this planet depend on sunlight for their vitamin D. There is essentially no vitamin D in our diet. It's cod liver oil, mushrooms exposed to sunlight, and wild caught uh, oily fish like salmon and mackerel and herring. And so it was sunlight that throughout evolution played a critical role in the evolution of vertebrates. 
And it's also likely that skin pigment evolved and devolved all for the purpose of making vitamin D. Because we now know that if you're vitamin D deficient, especially for uh, infant females, that as they're developing a pelvis, it winds up being flat and a very small pelvic outlet. And so if uh, people would have, a, women would have a very difficult time with childbirthing as a result. And so skin pigmentation began to devolve as people migrated north and south of the equator. And then I became interested in understanding why does your skin have a vitamin D receptor, meaning that the skin was a target tissue for vitamin D. And so I introduced the concept of using activated vitamin D to treat psoriasis. That's first line treatment for many patients with minimum psoriasis. And then it's just snowballed ever since. And we now recognize that basically every tissue and cell in your body has a vitamin D receptor. And um, that probably up to 2000 genes in your body uh, are regulated by vitamin D. We had just done a study showing that healthy adults that took up to 10,000 units of vitamin D a day and looking at their immune cells in, in their bloodstream, we were up and down regulating over 1,200 genes. And this has interesting implications for the pandemic because um, working with Quest Diagnostics, we showed in over 191,000 COVID positive patients that if you're vitamin D sufficient, and no matter what your ethnicity, uh, no matter male, female, age, or even latitude in the United States, if you're vitamin D sufficient, up to a 54% reduced risk of acquiring the infection. And a separate study we did uh, with a group in Iran showed that in 235 patients that presented with COVID-19, serious complications, 74% were in serious trouble. If they were vitamin D sufficient at the time they entered the hospital, marked reduction in morbidity and a 50% reduction in mortality for those over the age of 40. So we think that vitamin D certainly for the immune system is very important because we think it may actually help modulate the immune system. And you probably are aware that everybody talks about the cytokine storm associated uh, with COVID and is the major um, complication causing death and serious illness. Vitamin D plays a critical role in modulating your immune system. And we think that it helps to modulate that cytokine storm and prevent it from happening. Wow, I, that also, I guess, perfectly segues into my next question. You were talking about the how vitamin D receptors are kind of basically everywhere in the body. And I feel like each year they just find like more and more places that vitamin D receptors are. Um, and so it's been found that it's in basically every part of the brain. So I know how, that vitamin D has implications in helping fetal development, bone health, immune system, gene regulation, and many more. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about vitamin D's role in cardiovascular disease and stroke risk? Sure. So there was a study done, National Health Survey data showed that um, for those uh, individuals that were vitamin D sufficient, they had a 78% reduced risk of acquiring peripheral vascular disease. Um, we know that about 200 genes uh, related to um, your blood vessels, heart function, blood pressure, regulated by vitamin D. 
um, renin angiotensin system, which is a major player in, um, in, in uh, hypertension and heart, um, active vitamin D helps to down regulate that system. And then also the ACE2 receptor, right, is what is getting the coronavirus uh, into your uh, lung cells, right? And we think that vitamin D is playing a role in, at that level as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think a lot of the, the implications that vitamin D has in COVID and those papers that you've published recently are really interesting. Um, but also besides cardiovascular health, there has been evidence that vitamin D serum levels um, have an increased risk for neurologic and different psychological occurrences, such as schizophrenia, dementia, and even depression. Um, can you speak a little more to this as well? Sure. And so um, just like you said, is that we know that the brain has a vitamin D receptor, and we think that the brain has the ability to activate vitamin D as well locally. And um, we think that it helps to modulate um, both neurotransmission um, that may therefore be related to depression, uh, as well as there's some evidence reduces risk for Alzheimer's disease and neurocognitive dysfunction. Um, we also think that maybe playing some role in Parkinson's disease. There's a study done out of Atlanta showing that those with Parkinson's disease were more likely to be vitamin D deficient. But again, it's possible that because they have Parkinson's, they're, not less, they're less likely to be outside to get their major source of vitamin D. So those may be more true, true, but not related. Right. So what do, what do you say are the most common confounding factors for that? Because when you're measuring that, you also have to kind of factor in like maybe because they have lower vitamin D, they don't they have different lifestyle choices and don't go out as much, maybe don't eat as nutritious of foods. Um, so what do you say are the most common like confounding variables that you you see? Right. Well, the most common variables, of course, are um, latitude uh, in many ways, because we showed many years ago that basically if you live above and below about 35 degrees north of south latitude, you basically cannot make any vitamin D in your skin for three up to six months of the year. Uh, Edmonton, Canada, we did a study and showed six months of the year they could be exposed to sunlight in the morning or even mid-afternoon and they won't make any vitamin D. And so latitude is certainly a, a major player in uh, being able to maintain a healthy vitamin D status. Um, diet certainly can as well. And so there are some cultures that will be eating sun-dried mushrooms, for example. A lot of Asian um, cultures do that. That's a great source of vitamin D. Um, they do that in India as well. Um, and then also uh, people like Inuits and, and Eskimos, right? They were eating blubber from seals, contained high amounts of vitamin D, where polar bear liver, for example, contains vitamin D. Yum. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and so the, it, it turns out that, that there are some dietary sources, but for the most of the world's population, there isn't any. And that's why vitamin D deficiency continues to be a major health issue globally. We expect that based on all the literature that about 40% are deficient in vitamin D, 60% deficient or insufficient in vitamin D. Would you say the, the most amount of vitamin D you can get from something is the cod liver oil and fatty fish. And I know that a lot of milks are fortified. I know um, with more like plant-based milks emerging, are they, I'm assuming they have the same fortification. 
So it turns out that um, this, the story really begins back in the 1920s um, when they began to um, realize um, that uh, initially Dr. Hess and Unger in New York City, they um, had taken children, put them on a roof of a New York City hospital and demonstrated they could cure rickets. Dr. Steenbach in Wisconsin then realized if you can irradiate people and animals and prevent rickets, why not irradiate the food? And so then they started adding the precursor of vitamin D2 ergosterol to milk and they irradiated it. And that had anti-rickitic activity. So milk does contain vitamin D, but there's only a hundred international units and eight ounces. And orange juice contains vitamin D because we did the seminal study for Minute Maid and showed that it's bioavailable. Um, but even the Institute of Medicine recommends that for most children and adults, they need 600 units of vitamin D a day. And so you can't possibly get enough from dietary sources. So salmon, wild-caught salmon, 3.5 ounces, contains about 500 to 1,000 units a day uh, or, um, in, in that serving. Mm -hmm. And so you have to eat it every day, basically, in order to get your vitamin D. The Endocrine Society practice guidelines, and I was fortunate enough to chair that committee um, when we looked at all the literature, we came to the following conclusion to prevent and treat vitamin D deficiency, which is infants, 400 to 1,000 units a day. And the reason for infants in particular is that human breast milk essentially contains no vitamin D. So if you put your infant um, solely on human breast milk as a sole source of nutrition, which is a great source of nutrition, that infant will be vitamin D deficient for that period of time. And for children, 600 to 1,000 units a day. And teenagers, I think, should be treated like adults, 1,500 to 2,000 units a day. And most importantly, if you're obese, you need two to three times more because the vitamin D is getting in and diluting in your fat because it's fat soluble uh, in order to satisfy your vitamin D requirement. So now think about it. if you need to be on at least 1,500 to 2,000 units a day, you can't get this from your diet, mm -hmm. right? Now you may ask, well, how do we really know what our level should be? Well, there's two good pieces of information that give us a good insight. The first is that a study was done in Maasai herders um, and, uh, and other um, Bushmen in, uh, in um, Kenya. They showed that even though they have super dark skin, Mother Nature designed their skin so that enough ultraviolet radiation would get in to make vitamin D. Their blood levels are 40 to 50 nanograms per ml for 25 hydroxy vitamin D. To get there, you would need to take 4,000 to 5,000 units of vitamin D a day. Right? And, um, and a study was also done by Hollis and Wagner down in South Carolina and asked another question. I mean, it makes no sense that human breast milk shouldn't contain all nutrients, right? And so there must be a disconnect. Well, that disconnect is simple. Our hunter-gatherers outside every day were making thousands of units of vitamin D a day. And that uh, lactating women could then put the vitamin D in their milk. So Hollis and Wagner showed that if you give lactating women uh, over a little over 6,000 units of vitamin D a day, they finally put enough vitamin D in their milk to satisfy their infant's requirement. 
So that's why we think that maintaining a blood level of around 40 to 60 nanograms per ml is ideal as recommended by the Endocrine Society, up to 100 is perfectly safe. And our data that we had generated from um, that 191,000 plus uh, COVID positive patients, the higher your blood level, lower was your risk of acquiring the infection. And above 40 nanograms per ml, less likely to die from the infection. And so I know you've mentioned before, there's no like toxic level unless it's over 100, correct? Or maybe even 150, I think you mentioned. That's um, why so yeah, it's, it's, I'm assuming it's very hard to overdose on vitamin D. So you can overdose for sure, but typically you have to take literally hundreds of thousands of units a day mm. or a year before you have to worry. And so we had reported on a case of a gentleman down in Florida who back in the 1990s, I had been promoting everybody should take fourth 2000 units of vitamin D a day to help reduce colon cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer. So he was concerned about prostate cancer. So he went to his local pharmacy. Back in the 90s, you could not find a vitamin D supplement. They didn't exist. And so he went on the internet and he bought a product that contained what he thought was a thousand units in a teaspoon. And he took two teaspoons a day for over a year. And he was severely toxic. Turned out, I asked him to send the sample up to me. We did an analysis. The company never diluted it. He was taking pure crystalline vitamin D, two oh teaspoons a day, yeah. which is a million units a day. That will cause toxicity. Mm-hmm. So he asked me to be his doctor. And so I advised him about wearing sun protection all the time um, to, to prevent vitamin D production and also not to take any vitamin D, low calcium intake. His 25-hydroxy vitamin D gradually came down over about a year and a half. He had no complications from it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so I guess, yeah, in terms of lifestyle changes, in terms of sunscreen and, you know, sun protection and yep. being exposed, what do you recommend? Well, the problem is time of day, season, latitude, yeah. degree of skin pigmentation, all are a problem, right? They all will have some impact on the amount of sunlight getting into your skin. And so, Working with Ontometrics, we developed an app. And you can go on your Android or iPhone, it's free. It's called D-Minder, D-M-I-N-D-E-R dot I-N-F-O. And it'll tell you anywhere on this planet when you can make vitamin D, how much vitamin D you make, and it warns you to get out of the sun so you don't get a sunburn. Oh, wow, okay. Right. So on average, what I recommend is I know for myself, that I know if I can get a mild sunburn, what we call a minimal erythemal dose on Cape Cod in the summertime um, uh, at noontime, I know that after about 15 to 20 minutes, I need to get out of the sun. And so my recommendation is 50% of the time that it causes that minimal erythemal dose, like pinkness to your skin 24 hours later, um, arms, legs, abdomen, and back. Always protect your face. It's only 4% of your body surface. Really don't make that much vitamin D. It's most sun exposed and most sun damaged. Now, sun protection. If you put on an SPF of 30 properly, it will absorb 97.5% ultraviolet B radiation 
the radiation that makes vitamin D in your skin. So as a result, if you put on a sunscreen properly, you will basically not make any vitamin D. It'll reduce it by 97.5%. So um, my recommendation is go out for that short period of time, take advantage of the beneficial effect, and then some And in my opinion, the best sun protection by far is a broad rim hat and clothing whenever possible. Okay, that makes sense. I grew up around Philadelphia, but then I went to um, college in Southern California where I was on the swim team. And of course, like the outdoor pool and being in the sun was just so much better for me than East Coast swimming. Um, And then I lifeguarded and then now I'm back in Connecticut. So I'm definitely like (laughs) missing so much of that sun. And after reading about a bunch of stuff that you've written, I like immediately went outside and was like, just stick my arm out at least or something. Um, Problem is you still can't make any here in Boston or in Connecticut. Not until yeah. probably by the end of the month, you'll be able yeah. to. So I've been taking some supplements. I take around like 2000 to like 7,000 a day, um, yeah. just depending on how much I get outside or, but I, I mean, I guess apparently I, I can't make any now, but um, I had a friend that said that her doctor prescribed her 10,000 units because of bone health. Um, and so like just reading about different things, I thought like the upper limit was around, I know it's like around 4,000, but then when I heard 10,000, I was like, that seems like a lot, but I'm assuming that's good. Well, it can be. I mean, we did a study in healthy adults with 10,000 units a day for six months and showed that they could regulate up to 1,200 genes. On four on 4,000 units a day, about 400 genes. And on 600 units a day, about 200 genes. So we do think that higher intakes may be more beneficial, but I typically take 6,000 units every day because I have a 5,000 unit tablet and a multivitamin that contains 1,000 units a day. Most of my patients have been on three to 5,000 units a day forever, and they've done well. Okay. I'm going to stick with that dose then at least until I can get back to California and (laughs) start laying in the sun again, but safely. Do you, would you say, cause I know a lot of problems with some of these studies are that they're observational. Do you think now we've, we have more randomized controlled trials to kind of justify and back, back this up? It's, it's, it's complicated mm-hmm. because um, there have been some very large trials um, that have been conducted that suggest that maybe vitamin D is not having as much benefit as we had anticipated. And the vital trial is a good example. And so you have to really ask, how was that trial designed? Um, And to read that manuscript very carefully, it turns out that more than 50% of the people in that study in a placebo-controlled trial, getting 2,000 units or placebo a day, more than 50% were vitamin D sufficient at the time they started the trial. Well, if you're vitamin D sufficient and now you're taking vitamin D, why would you expect there to be an additional health benefit, Mm -hmm. right? So that's a major problem. There's also a study that was done for pre-type 2 diabetes. And again, they didn't show any significant effect in reducing that risk for developing type 2 diabetes. But many of the subjects were vitamin D sufficient already because vitamin D it's kind of the nutrient of the decade, right? Is that everybody's talking about it and, and many people are taking it. And so as a result, if you 
don't do a study carefully and take vitamin D deficient or insufficient patients and then give them vitamin D and or placebo and follow them for X number of years, maybe would give a better insight. And it's also kind of tricky because a lot of studies define deficiency, insufficiency, and sufficiency differently. So like sometimes like how one says that half of them are insufficient would be sufficient in another study. Um, right. But also like, and I know you mentioned calibration for measuring vitamin D can also get tricky potentially. So yeah, so different assays um, can be problematic. Mm. Um, and a good example is that um, the only pharmaceutical form of vitamin D in the United States, believe it or not, is vitamin D2. And, uh, and it's been argued on the internet that vitamin D2 is not as effective as vitamin D3 and you should stay away from it. It's true that vitamin D3 is what you make in your skin, found in cod liver oil and in wild caught salmon. But vitamin D2 had been used as a um, supplement and treatment for vitamin D deficiency for more than 50 years from the 1930s um, until about uh, the year 2000. And like I said, even today, we still use it to treat vitamin D deficiency in our patients. Most of my patients had been on vitamin D too. And also India where um, uh, vegans are very common, right? India now is beginning to fortify milk and co cooking oil with vitamin D and they chose vitamin D2. And the reason being because of their population um, being vegans. Wow, that's really interesting. That's interesting to hear. Had their milk not already been fortified? Is that a- So most places in the world, it's either forbidden or not happening. And it, and it turns out that this is historical, is that up until about 1950, throughout Europe, vitamin D, was fortified in custard and milk. Um, and then in the 1950s, there was an outbreak of infants that presented with uh, funny looking faces. So they had some kind of, of uh, teratogenic, um, something they thought was happening um, that caused these, uh, that problem. They had supervalvular aortic stenosis, a problem with their heart. And they had a high blood calcium. Well, this got, was of great concern um, in um, the UK. And so they brought in the experts and the experts had not a clue, but they read the literature and the literature suggested that if you give pregnant rats high doses of vitamin D, their pups have funny looking faces, have heart problems and have high blood calcium. And so it was concluded back then that most likely but this was caused by overfortification of milk with vitamin D. And since they didn't have a really good way of measuring the vitamin D, and because obviously this is a pretty serious consequence for these infants, instantly it was banned in the UK. And then this spread throughout Europe, Asia, and South America. And so that, that is still on the books today. It turns out it's likely that those infants actually had a genetic disorder called Williams syndrome. And Williams syndrome is associated with elfin facies and heart problem. And they have a hypersensitivity to vitamin D causing the blood calcium to go up. So I've talked to um, the uh, uh, health um, group at, in the House of Commons many years ago. 
practice. I've been down to Brazil and talked to their um, health um, uh, experts. And even though everybody agrees that it's the likely cause, no, there's never been a push to really increase fortification of food with vitamin D in those countries. So it's still forbidden many countries throughout Europe and the world. It's only United States, now Finland and um, India um, and Mexico, Canada, they're the major places where fortification occurs. And so, wow. yeah. Well, it's, it's, I guess, a little more harming to hear that it's increasing at least a little slowly. Um, well, it's really amazing that India did this a couple of yeah. years ago, right? Wow. That's a major breakthrough because people thought again, you, India, come on. I mean, it's sun filled, right? All the time, mm. right? Can't possibly have vitamin D deficiency, but yet majority of their population is vitamin D deficient. Wow. That's really interesting to hear. What would you say? So I know that most of um, vitamin D is kind of done through synthesis in the skin, um, not as much through dietary sources, but what would you say to people who maybe don't have access to like healthy, at least milk or fatty fish, either living in like food deserts or food swamps, or even among air pollution that compromise production of vitamin D, what's the, the best advice you would give them? So my advice is simple, which is everybody should take a supplement unless you're a lifeguard, right? You can't make enough vitamin D because you're not a hunter gatherer. You're not out there having mm -hmm. to every day exposed to the sun when you can make vitamin D. So you can't possibly make enough vitamin D. And so I'm always asked the question, well, you know, then doctor, I'll take it in the winter and the spring, but I don't have to do it in the summertime because I'm out there in the sun. You're probably not, still not getting enough from the sun. And we did a study in well over 2 million samples throughout the entire United States working again with Quest Diagnostics. And we showed that when you're looking at the peak and, and lowest low blood levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D, as you would expect, they occur at the end of the summer around August, September. The nadir is March, April. What's amazing is the difference is only nine nanograms per ml. So mm -hmm. normally, uh, typically adults are, are in a range of 18 to 22. And then in, at the end of the summer, it's around 29 to 30 nanograms per ml. We want you to be at least 30 nanograms per ml and 40 to 60 is preferred. And there's a rule of thumb that once your blood levels at around 20 nanograms per ml, for every hundred units you ingest, you raise your blood level by about 0.6 to one nanogram per ml. And that's why being on 5,000 units a day for a normal weight person, their blood level will be in that preferred range of 40 to 60 nanograms per ml. There's only so many glasses of milk you can, you can sit there and drink, you know? So I'm glad that well, I no, supplement. And, and you can't take, you know, you're not gonna drink more than three to four glasses of milk a day. Yeah. You'll get too much calcium as well. Yes. But milk is a great source of calcium. Um, it's a great source of whey protein, good uh, protein, nutrition, um, as well as getting a little bit of vitamin D, but it's a hundred units. So I have all my patients are, um, their major source of calcium is definitely dairy whenever they can tolerate. Mm -hmm. So in that vitamin D is influenced by skin pigmentation. Those who are black or Hispanic have been shown to have lower vitamin D and could be more at risk of cardiovascular disease. So what is the best way to address this specifically? The skin pigment is a, is a wonderful sunscreen. 
And so typically an African-American would need to be outside five or 10 times longer than me to make the same amount of vitamin D. And so it's well-documented worldwide. People of color are at much higher risk for deficiency. They're at much higher risk for cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, um, and breast cancer and colon cancer, uh, and, and have more aggressive cancers. So what would you say to the people who are like, anti-wellness industrial complex and think that it's just to like sell supplements and you, you know vitamin d is very important so what is your like your mantra to them um my mantra is very simple you you really almost cannot get enough from environmental exposure mm-hmm. and so i just vitamin d is very inexpensive i always recommend a national brand so you can get from your local pharmacy brand for example which is the national brand like cvs um, Walmart um, and uh, Walgreens, for example, they're perfectly fine. And, you know, you get like a hundred of them for like $8. And if you mm. get two for one sale, you, you, you have enough to last you for several months to half a year. Right. And so that's my recommendation to all of my patients. Okay. Um, I just have a couple quick fun ones kind of, or I guess first, um, so what are you currently researching? I know you're doing a lot of um, interesting studies between the relationships of vitamin D and COVID. Um, so I know that you're doing that, but what else are you currently researching? And also, do we know what we don't know about vitamin D? Right. So we're very interested in, in better understanding um, how vitamin D is working at a genomic level uh, and to tr- try to uncover uh, additional genes um, that may be affected by your vitamin D status, especially your immune system. Um, but we're also interested in developing LED technology uh, to potentially make vitamin D. Um, and we've published a couple of papers on this, that LEDs are really neat because um, you can tune them and you can actually pick the wavelength that's maximum for the production of vitamin D. And we showed that an LED putting out 295 nanometer radiation or 293 nanometer radiation is three times more efficient than natural sunlight in making vitamin D in your skin. Oh, wow. I'm also just thinking now, I've heard of people saying that, um, just kind of going back to another question, that people in prisons in the South aren't allowed outside. So people who have been in there for years aren't allowed outside. Is that like, have you tried to have sell them supplements or try to, I don't know, it just seems like that could be a huge problem long-term. Yeah, I've been contacted by um, several groups about this issue. And um, personally, I think that if you're not exposed to any sunlight, um, you're definitely going to be vitamin D deficient because you right. can't get enough from your diet. And that aches and pains in your bones and muscles, right? That's what's called osteomalacia. Um, it's caused by vitamin D deficiency. And that's the likely reason that people, especially in the wintertime, they just feel more groggy and their joints are a little bit more stiff and they just have achiness and they think, well, it's cold weather and it's just the wintertime. It could be but it's also quite possible it's due to vitamin D deficiency. I just recently received an email from a dentist at our dental school, and she um, told me that she had gone to my lecture and I had talked about vitamin D and this bone disease. And she started developing severe lower back pain. 
and she couldn't figure out why. And being a dentist and standing all day, this was a major problem for her. And so she remembered back from my lecture and she started taking vitamin D. And she said, all gone. Wow. And so, yeah. And so she emailed to me, thanking me profusely um, that I basically almost saved her career because um, she was having such difficulty in being able to function because of her severe lower back pain. Wow. I'm hoping that like through making this podcast for my thesis, I can also help get the word out there, but it's also why very important why you should pay attention to lectures always. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess in addition to that, so what's one piece of advice you would give to the 22 year old brain um, regarding brain health or vitamin D or just general wisdom? So what can people be doing better? Is it just taking more supplements and making sure that they're, you know, being on top of getting adequate vitamin D? Well, good diet exercise and 2000 units of vitamin D a day minimum and preferably 5000 units a day. And if you're obese, BMI of greater than 30, probably you need at least two, possibly three times more to satisfy that requirement. Okay. Those are some good checklists. Um, and then last quick kind of fun one. I usually have people describe the brain in three words. Um, so if you could describe the brain in three words and then vitamin D in three words, just as a, a fun ender. Well, um, it, a, it's the computer of your body and vitamin D necessary from birth until death for maximum health. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for giving me your time. I'm hoping I can also um, help spread the message of vitamin D and all the good, good luck things with today. your thesis and have a delightful day. Thank you so much. You as well. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Well, you heard the man. Good diet, exercise, and at least 2,000 international units of vitamin D a day. I think it's really incredible that he was the first to use activated vitamin D to treat people with kidney disease. It is also incredible just how many genes are regulated by vitamin D related to blood vessels, heart function, and blood pressure. The brain activates vitamin D locally where it can regulate neurotransmission, reduce risk of Alzheimer's disease, and improve neurocognitive dysfunction. It is bewildering that 40% of the US is deficient in vitamin D. And knowing how many genes it regulates related to cardiovascular health, it's no wonder that vitamin D could be related to stroke risk. Grab your milk, orange juice, wild-caught salmon, and some sun to keep serum levels above 30 nanograms per milliliter where 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter is preferred, and according to Dr. Hollick, up to 100 nanograms per milliliter is safe. Dr. Hollick's app, D-Minder, which is in the show notes, tells you when you are making vitamin D based on where you live, how much you're making right now, and warns you to get out of the sun if you've gotten enough. As a reminder, he recommends that you spend about 50% of the time it would take to get a mild sunburn, then cover your body with a hat and clothing instead of sunscreen because that will absorb most of the UV. And remember, always cover your face because your face does not make vitamin D. Dr. Hollick also says that unless you're a lifeguard, everyone should take a vitamin D supplement, which you can get cheaply from any local store such as a CVS, and while vitamin D3 is the one made in your skin, both D3 and D2 are sufficient as supplements. He takes 6,000 international units, which is from a 5,000 international unit vitamin D supplement and a multivitamin that contains 1,000 international units. He recommends to his patients to take around 3,000 to 5,000 international units a day who have reportedly done well. 
Additionally, we need to be critical of how trials are designed and see if participants are already sufficient in vitamin D before they take these supplements. It's important to keep in mind both the good and the bad in the sources you consult so that you can come to your own informed conclusions. It is worth noting that there was a popular New York Times article from 2018 that I will post in the show notes that talks about how Dr. Hollick may have used his position to financially benefit from the increase in vitamin D lab tests by 547% from 2007 to 2016 by working with labs and drug makers. Since then, he has stated in interviews that he doesn't get any additional money if they sell one test or one billion, but I wanted to mention this so that we can all practice making our own informed decisions when making lifestyle changes. In the next podcast, we are going to talk to University of Michigan's Dr. Kenneth Langa about how cardiovascular disease is a central issue in the pathology of cognitive decline, the social and economic impacts of stroke recovery, dealing with confounding factors of measuring vitamin D, and the brain health advice he gives his patients. See you soon. Thank you.